Hello everybody and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast, volume 10, issue 493. Today we're going to talk about Dead Rising. Joining me, Leon Cox, in this issue are John Salmon. Hi. And Carl Moon. Hey everyone. Just a three-person show for this Dead Rising issue. What is Dead Rising? I make it a third-person action game set in a zombie and psychopath-infested American shopping mall in which you play the player as a freelance photojournalist. Obviously, we'll get deeper into the mechanics and such, but let's start off by casting our minds back to the mid-2000s. The game is 15 years old, hence us covering it. Uh, we're very much in the, the wake of Halloween now. I can't remember if I'd ever managed to time this show successfully so that it would come out for Halloween for Patreons, but that ship has sailed. So here we are recording this in uh, in November. Anyway, now, Carl, uh, I know you were an enthusiastic early adopter of the Xbox 360, <laughs> the mighty, powerful new generation console. And I think it's fair to say, when I think of Dead Rising, certainly one of the things I think of is a kind of a technical showcase poster child for the new generation of yeah. consoles, as well as being Capcom's new zombie game. So I imagine your excitement was fairly uh, a reasonable level. It was. And actually for this uh, issue, I actually looked to see when my order history went in for this game. Um, just out of morbid curiosity, because mm. I don't know how many people are familiar with 2006 as a year, but it was an absolute humdinger for games. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I originally put a stock notice on on gameplay, the uh, almighty retailer gameplay when they were around. Uh, eventually I put an order in when it went live on the site in June. Um, and then I ended up getting this game uh, as a payment for designing a website for a friend and he picked it up and sent it to my house. So uh, I did get it at launch um, and I was incredibly excited for this all the way from way before it was known as Dead Rising when there was the rumours of um, Project Snatcher by uh, Capcom that was going to be a zombie huh. game. And in my head, I'm like, okay, this is the new Resident Evil, definitely. Yeah. Um, and, and then being super excited. And then we saw the 2005 showcase. It looked good. Um, I had to have this one day one, got the limited steelbook edition. And yeah. Yeah. And the faceplate. Yeah. John, what about you? Were you also, were you similarly jazzed for Dead Rising action? Yeah. Uh, surprisingly, because I tend to not be somebody who gets very caught up in the hype. And t maybe, maybe it was more of a, something that I did 15 years ago. But uh, my major memories of this are that I only bought a 360 around the time that this had its original launch date in the USA. So I got my 360 uh, mm. either the 31st of July or the 1st of August 2006. Uh, and I was immediately uh, having a new console, like looking at new games, new things that were interesting. Um, so yeah, I was I was well into this. It was brand new console, brand new game. So this is a one that I don't know if I ever really pre-ordered anything back then, but the mm. day that it came out in the UK, um, I was working just around the corner, just a few hundred yards away from uh, the street where there was a game station and a game that were either next door to each other or like two or three shops in between. So I can't remember which one I went to, but I remember going in there wanting a copy of Dead Rising. They had the steel books and the faceplate which was on my 360 for a hell of a long time the the dead rising faceplate 
And I remember the guy in the store saying, eh, these are supposed to be pre-order bonuses and they're supposed to be super rare. I think he told me that the, the faceplate specifically, they made 500 of them worldwide, which I find mm. that slightly hard to believe. <laughs> but he tried to pass it yeah. off as, ah, these are, these are pre-order bonuses. You know, you've just walked in on day one. You shouldn't be getting one. And I kind of went, eh, go on. And he ended up, he was like, well, <laughs> somebody will probably not come in and collect their pre-order steelbook. So here you go. Um, Someone out there still crying. Yeah. So, yeah, and I was I was then pretty up on this. So I got this. I'm pretty sure this was the thing that forced me to look into getting an HDTV as well. Yes. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. That was famously a problem with this. The text was really small and very difficult to read on, yeah. on like a 4x3 or a cathode ray tube. So I remember getting this, playing it for a reasonable amount of time, finding it maybe not quite as fun as I was expecting it to, then getting it thinking, oh, well, I'll get an HDTV. And then I think I did a playthrough of it where I might have failed the um, the cases or I might have died at some point about halfway through. Mm. And I think that it, it put me off a little bit, the um, weird time management system and resources and stuff. I didn't come back to it for quite a long time after that. So... I don't want to say that I was originally soured on it, but maybe, you know, working myself up into a frenzy with all the hype, and then it wasn't quite as just balls out fun as I was expecting. It has oh, this... oh so yeah. many people yeah. bounce off this game. We're going to yeah. hear. We're we'll going to definitely get onto that yeah. as a topic, I'm yeah. certain. I did bounce a little bit, but then when I got back into it, I got back into it really hard. And so I've played through that original version on the 360 more times than I can count. And then the, there's an Xbox One re-release as well, and presumably PS4 and Switch yes. and everything yeah. else from a no, few years ago. No, not, not the Switch. No Switch? Yeah, just PS4 and Xbox One, yeah. So, yeah, I've, I got that on the Xbox One and really went to town on that about a year ago as well. So, yeah, I, I guess I, I eventually came around. But that's... We're going to do the Dark Souls comparison here, aren't we? It's like people a million started playing Dark Souls, bounced off it, and then came <laughs> back and it became their favourite game that they'd ever played. Yeah. And, yeah, this is kind of an earlier version of that for me a little bit uh my history with the game is well i got my xbox 360 on emergence day was that november 2006 yeah uh which with uh the excellent blockbuster bundle that they were doing which had uh, four or five games in it and i also picked up a couple of other things at the same time a gears of war De- faceplate by any chance probably a gears of war faceplate <clears throat> certainly gears of war um and I knew Dead Rising was already out. I didn't have an HD TV, and I was aware that this game kind of didn't need, but would benefit from one. I was on a cathode ray, decent size, widescreen wide TV, but uh, I knew that was one of the games that might be, yeah, might be there for for when I got an HD TV. According to my records, I did pick up the game for twenty quid in two thousand seven, but I have very little memory of playing it beyond maybe the first hour. Unfortunately, I was one of the many people who properly bounced off it. And then over the years, obviously it came up. I played a bit more of Dead Rising 2 than I did of 1 and quite enjoyed it. It seemed like maybe the the new developer there had smoothed off some of the kind of rough edges. Um, And it was also just uh, occasionally Carl would mention it and just say, basically, it's a game that you're supposed to it's one of those games that you're supposed to be rubbish at first and you keep playing it mm. and it gets better the more you play. And I think, I'm not sure, maybe I just didn't read the reviews or the the peer reviews at the time properly, but I don't think I'd ever really had that emphasised to me at the time. 
uh, because you really do, and we will get into this, of course, start off absolutely hopeless. Your character is just weak and slow and there is no getting around it. And you have to play for quite a long time and, and, and be you know, pretty s- smart and committed to get to a point where the game is out and out fun, as you said, John. Uh, and yeah, so like many, many others, uh, I just really bounced off it. And as is so often the case, uh, I used this here podcast as an excuse to come back to the game. Somehow, don't really, I remember picking up the PS4 version for a few quid in a sale, and I think they gave away the Xbox One version on games with gold at some point or something like that. It's in my library. Yeah. Uh, so I just did a scan of uh, an old Digital Foundry from 2016 when they re-released that version. There was virtually nothing between the the console versions, but the PS4 version was ever so slightly sharper looking. So I just got that one. Uh, decided to play through that one. And yeah, played through to the end of the fourth day, got all the cases closed. Uh, but I haven't done the thing of kind of fully new game plussing it and going back through and kind of uh, getting to the point where I'm a one-man army and the zombies are... A mere distractions among the uh, among the photojournalism, but um, but it was uh, yeah another one of the games that I've been grateful to give myself the opportunity to go back to. So yeah, the this, uh, the developer is Capcom Production Studio One. So although this is a Capcom zombie game, this is not from the Resident Evil stable as such. No Mikamis, no Kamias. This is from the Mega Man and Breath of the Wild stables. One particular area that uh, they were keen to work on the team were was the number of zombies that could appear on screen during the game in order to give the feel that this was a major outbreak. When EGM reviewed the game, they reported up to 800 zombies could appear on screen at once. Think about, I think uh, Resident Evil 2 had seven maximum on screen at once. While the company wanted to have the game follow on from its other zombie-centred game series, its development team opted to design a game with a more comical view of zombies in the horror genre, particularly in a way that players interacted with the zombies in the game, allowing them to be able to do anything against them in terms of what weapons they could use, while they also based the mall upon the stereotypical design of American shopping malls. As the development team consisted of members who had worked on Capcom's RPG Breath of the Wild Dragon... uh, Breath of the Wild? Breath of Fire, Dragon Quarter. It helped greatly in incorporating one of the game's elements borrowed from it towards developing the mechanics structure of Dead Rising, which is the ability to roll over anything earned in terms of experience, levels and abilities towards making a new playthrough. Uh, This was implemented so that players would have a sense of responsibility for their decisions and actions, according to Wikipedia. The name Dead Rising itself was originally just a working title, but as is so often the case, it was kept all the way to the end. The director was Yoshinori Kawano, who is best known or was best known previously for the Breath of Fire series and the Mega Man Zero series specifically. But the producer was the now famous and slightly infamous, maybe for Mighty Number no. 9, Keiji Inafune, Street Fighter 1 he was involved in, not the sequel. Mega Man series and also he was uh, somewhat involved in the Resident Evil series so there is there is a little DNA there Chief Coder was Shigeru Kato who had worked on Onimusha 3 Demon Siege which is of course a kind of tangent from Resident Evil in some ways as well and lead artist I believe is Keiji Ueda again Breath of Fire Mega Man and so it goes on one of the composers Hideki Okugawa 
is uh, a Capcom stalwart with uh, credits on the Darkstalkers or Vampire series of games, the Street Fighter 3 series of games, and again, Onimusha's 2 and 3. As we say, the game was released in North America in August 2006 with the EU version arriving a month later. Australia had to wait another week for some reason. Quiet Paul from the forum says, how mental is it that in five years time, Dead Rising will be 20 years old? <laughs> I swear I picked it up for the first time on the 360 not that long ago. I got it just a few weeks after release. I remember my initial thoughts being that it's definitely fun, but a little confusing. Where are the staple Capcom zombie puzzles? You mean to access the next part of the mall, I don't have to find three pieces of a big emblem or fight a big nasty boss with a conveniently enlarged shoulder eyeball? I think this game is Marmite, and I love it, but I could also see why a lot of people don't. <laughs> Super user from the forum says, I first played this around 2017 using that PC port. Time was unkind to Dead Rising for animations and control, but in other ways it shows how unique it still is. It feels like a PS2 game, but pushed the limits of the 360 and taking advantage of the new craze for persistent worlds. The areas in Willamette Mall were clearly distinct and the map was just small enough for you to remember every weapon pickup and weird thing you'll come across. I strayed from discussing the negative aspects of the game, like the massive difficulty early on and the general level of jank in combat and animations. I couldn't imagine trying to beat this with controller stick aiming. Most of the, ability, uh, of the difficulty comes from bosses, but the zombies are enough of a threat to keep you on your toes. It also replicates Dynasty Warriors in having you help fellow survivors that cannot help themselves. Though you will, you can also kill them if you want. It's up to you. So yeah, let's talk about the setting of the game. George Romero may be mentioned. <laughs> According to Steam Blurb, Frank West, a freelance photojournalist on the hunt for the scoop of a lifetime, pursues a juicy lead to a small suburban town only to find that it is being overrun by zombies. He escapes to the local shopping mall thinking it will be a bastion of safety, but it turns out to be anything but. It's a true struggle to survive the endless stream of enemies, but with full reign over an entire shopping centre, Frank can utilise anything to fight off the flesh-hungry mob and search for the truth behind the horrendous epidemic. Enticing? John, I think you said you basically your, your fandom of the, the Snyder remake of the Romero film kind of... It was it was kind of selling you the play the movie kind of experience to the point that they ended up having to put a disclaimer on the box. Yes, I never never really knew whether the disclaimer was supposed to be just like a, a a joke towards it or whether it was an actual like legal. Please don't sue us. We we will say that we're different enough, or whether it was just almost like enticing you again of like yeah. If you I didn't realize, this might also be like that other zombie thing that you might like. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> probably worked both ways quite well. But yeah, I remember there being a big sticker on the front of the um, the case saying like any similarities to uh, Dawn of the Dead or George Are Romero or deliberate. something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so the main character is is Frank, played by Terence J. Rotolo, who I note has almost as many credits as a stunt coordinator than as an actor. But that said, still turns up in uh, video games as a voice actor. Was in Jedi Fallen Order and things like that. So. This wasn't like a one and done or anything like that. We, we've seen that with some of the other games we've covered where somebody does a video game voice and then <laughs> they're never heard of again. Uh, Terence is a, you know, a working actor and, and stunt person, obviously. Uh, is again, like there's a, it's a, a, a weird sort of 
schism for me between the sort of like Frank's a goofy looking character. He's got a he's got a funny face. He's uh, like a rugby there's... player, isn't he? He's got a very <laughs> smashed uh, rugby playing nose. Yeah, yeah. It's it's car- it's kind of cartoonish as most of the characters are. And and again, there's sometimes I would say there's a little friction between the level of kind of comic booky or cartooniness versus reality. That I think maybe it, it's sort of partly to do with that. Yeah, obviously. We talked about the Resident Evil series, particularly in its early installments and that sort of uh, interesting filter of uh, a Japanese development team doing English voice acting with uh, in a kind of traditionally Western film genre and all this kind of thing. And, and the kind of craziness that, that came about from that. And here we are. So we're, what, three years prior to dead uh, to Resident Evil 5 which itself still had some pretty wacky aspects to the to the to the storytelling and and characterization and voice acting and and yeah so again i would say through the through the the characters the various side characters npcs and and supporting characters and all that it kind of again it speaks to the that sort of level of darkness and horror that that for me it kind of it's a the the graph's a bit bumpy in terms of is it trying to be funny is it trying to be serious is it trying to be completely out there bonkers don't know how you folks feel i think tonally uh it it fits all the profiles uh character wise for what you would probably see in a range of different horror movies of the of the era and it kind of mm. does fit in with that yeah um from the you know People doing stupid things in a in a difficult situation, you know the jocks, the the cheerleaders, the the nerds, all all of these stereotypical roles that you see across horror are all in here. And Frank is some kind of strange amalgamation that makes up a caricature of a hero, and mm. it is a hapless you, hero. Right, he is somewhat bit, like a comic yeah. book character. Yeah. Uh, do you know what this game? It, it, as much as any other reminds me of Bully, Rockstar's Bully. Like I know Absolutely. that's set in a yeah. school. No, I but get the, you. But the sort of semi-open world, the 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 real-time aspects, the the goofy groups of characters, but with occasionally serious mm. or interesting storylines. It's it's that weird mid two thousands era game of yeah yeah, yeah like are we are we serious? Two thousand six, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Same year, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's it's like a satire, but. Um extremely tropey at the same time and they do um they do quite a lot with the like the different psychopaths i think are some of the more uh cliched characters and this i do like the idea that it seems that this is basically one town in the country at this point that's gone to pieces within the course of a couple of days and just immediately all these people have completely (laughs) gone off their rocket like this full blown yes the um overacting and stuff in some of them as i particularly like the the guy who was the manager of the supermarket like at what what point do you just go right well everybody's dead or dying this is what's going to happen now i'm going to reinforce this shopping trolley and just go absolutely ballistic running around and be furious about somebody coming into my store it's so over the top and cliched but it's it's very entertaining at the same time becomes charming as a result of how ridiculous it is. And I remember there was um, sort of discourse around uh, the intention of it and that actually the the character acting was, you know, frustratingly bad and 
Mm. I think we'd come recently off the back of, you know, I think Metal Gear Solid 2 and stuff in, in years prior where we'd seen these cinematic exposés and, you know, I don't want to say that the, the, uh, there was no overacting in Metal Gear Solid because that would be ridiculous to state such a fact. But this went so far down that it was almost like the director said, look, just go wild with it and it's going to be fun. And I think the character that got it the most right is actually Frank himself mm. um, because as ridiculous as he seemed in a one-off, he was always going to be the one that got that kind of cult following that's followed yeah. him ever since. And the other games have kind mm. of missed him. You know, Dead Rising 4, you know, we can ignore that um, because it's not really a Dead Rising game. But, you know, you start seeing cameos of him in other games and that the, yeah. the ridiculousness of Fighting the lines. Games. And I, I do get the impression that the voice actor um, just had a lot of fun with the ridiculousness of those lines that were Frank. And I think I've come to love Frank more and more as the years have gone by, just mm. for how stupid he is as a character. Mm. Um, I, I just find it incredibly charming in the world of of Dead Rising, um, Dead Rising One. Obviously. Yeah, and I suppose uh, to an extent, because there are role playing elements of this game you can kind of choose to play him as a hero or not. You can either play him as the guy yeah. who's only there for the scoop and the money that that will lead from that if he gets out alive, all the photographs he's taking, or, and it is obviously to your benefit as well, because there are, there are other reasons to it beyond uh, altruism, but you can go around and spend all your time rescuing people who are in dire straits. But it's really, it's, kind of up to the player if you do that for the most part outside of the critical cases yeah and the the way that the storyline actually plays out you do get the feeling from the um the dialogue and stuff that he has with are they fbi agents the two brad and jesse yeah are they just some sort of generic um agency and then the way that he he corresponds with um oh why am i forgetting the name is it isabella um the woman from the mexican yeah isabella and the way that he talks to Otis over the... Uh, well, actually, I think Otis just talks to him. But like, yeah. you don't really get any um, any indication that Frank is really there for anything more than just getting his scoop and leaving. But like, I tend to always play it with the the idea of... Well, of course, you, you know, there's people dotted all over the place who are, you know, mm. within a few minutes, they're going to be torn to pieces unless you go out of your way and, and give them a hand. And that's weighing that up is also then the the balance between whether or not you're going to get the cases done but i like the idea of frank at least being a little bit altruistic and a little going out of his way to do these things and i think for me i never really never realized how much i liked frank as a character until they started with the sequels where i think the lineage is you had like an xbox live arcade game very short i think it was called case, case zero no, Case West oh, Case was another Zero, one sorry. later. Case West was yeah. a co-op one, yeah. Yeah, that was further down the line. So you had Case Zero, and then mm. that was a prequel to Dead Rising 2. And they had a different main character in those games who yeah. I remember bits about it, but nowhere near as much as... Biker guy? Yeah. Um, yeah, yellow yes. and black biker jacket. Yeah, they, yeah. they played like gladiators-style games with zombies or something for like a game show thing. Pugil sticks. Yeah, kind of, with on like bikes with pugil sticks with chainsaws mm-hmm. and stuff. And I, I remember playing that, and I was really up for Dead Rising 2, and I just never really liked the character that much. And this was clearly 
clearly something that a lot of other people felt because then they did after Dead Rising 2 they did another downloadable title which was Case West which brought Frank back as the Mm. main character there and continued the story and then for whatever reason they decided to do essentially a a remake or a re-release of Dead Rising 2 I think that one's called Off the Record and that's got Frank as the main character replacing the biker guy and they brought Mm. back the photo elements into it so clearly there was enough of a you know, people really liked Frank, that can we mm. please have Dead Rising 2 with Frank in it? Yeah, right. Yeah, that's interesting. Super User from our forum says, The story was surprisingly engrossing and fun. Frank West is a great lead character. The psychopaths had lots of character and the whole vibe of the game was just far enough away from horror to be enjoyable for me. The romantic ending was very well done. I don't think I've issued a spoiler warning. It feels slightly redundant, but... Uh, there you go. There's a romantic, there's a potential romantic ending, but we'll talk about the multiple possible endings in a bit, of course. Let's talk about the visuals. We've talked a little about the tech, but uh, but actually let's talk about yeah, how it looks overall. The I remember at the time playing this in well, 2007 being pretty amazed at uh the level of detail in the game world like the uh the amount of kind of yeah just attention to detail that capcom and its uh, artists had put into the more it it looks quite bare now going back playing it on ps4 in 2021 uh it's still it it's it reads very clearly it doesn't it's not hideous i don't think uh but it looks yeah like a looks like a 15 year old game but at the time the yeah just the there, there were talking about the the game being a bit of a a showcase for the new tech. Part of it was the resolution and the number of uh, elements, moving elements on screen and things like that. But part of it was just the actual, yeah, the density of the game world. Yeah, yeah. So this is the thing that really blew me away more than anything else, and it's mm. still the game that I reference today when I talk about um, the density of individual or unique textures uh-huh. um and sort of the i suppose a sense of realism although it's a, it's a very cartoonish style you know it, it doesn't yeah. go for hyper realism mm. but when you walk through the mall it's very clear that it's a mall but also you get you go into the shops and you just see all these things on the shelves and it's mm. uh, the items are like the the clearly 3d the textured and you might see a few of them, but you'll see so many different ones. You'll go into the sports shop and you'll see all the different balls and the helmets yeah. and like the hockey sticks and just the the density of all these things blew me away at the time. And I I don't think I've been that impressed by anything since in terms <laughs> of how engrossed I feel in terms of an environment that's Based upon something that's you know tangible and realistic with with it. Oh, I think Red Dead shops. Redemption Two may have got close for me, but I I know I know the feeling you're talking about. I think yeah, what was clever that. was the because not everything is interactive, but in just enough of the objects in the game world were interactive to make it feel like you could pick up anything off the shelf and yes. throw it at a yeah. zombie. And it's a it's a real treat the first time you play it where you don't know what may or may not be interactive, like running around and seeing the little icons and thinking, what? what's the point in picking up a rack of CDs? Oh, yeah, I guess I can just 
<laughs> yeah, toss them like frisbees at zombies. Yeah. And uh, there's there's obviously you know some weird little concessions there. There's lots of bits where you can change into various types of clothing throughout the mall. And often when you're in the stores uh, on the actual sort of semi built into the background, there'll be there'll be like little display stands with things, and you'll go up and think, oh, that you know I quite like that red t-shirt, or whatever, and you'll change into it, and actually it won't be quite that. It'll be you know there'll be something yeah. else that it, it then yeah. has mimicked in a few other stores or you know you can go up and and think oh you know pick up this skateboard and ride it and there'll be on the background there'll be a bunch of different pictures of different looking skateboards and you'll pick it up it's like oh yeah okay there's just one generic skateboard that that is in all of these spots so there's that but you know that's that's a a pretty uh, minor complaint compared to what they actually do give you and what you can uh, you know can pick up and and use and throw around and there's there are points here where i think I think they have definitely overstretched themselves a little bit. And there's, I think one of the spots for me that has always been noticeable is, I think it's when you pick up a football or a bowling ball and you th- you do the action to use it and there's a very slight hang for a second as if the game's like, hold on, I just got to work out what the physics of you pointing in this exact direction are going to be <laughs> when you uh... boot this football into this group of zombies ahead of you. And you do yeah, see is. it just pause for a split second that's still there so yeah if like there's there's an elevator that you come to every time you want to go into the mall if you take that route and there's a soccer ball football outside and yeah exactly that if you if you hoof it in there um the frame rate will just drop a little bit when you Mm. when you kick the ball in there and it and it works out how it's going to ricochet between all the zombies just ever so slightly as i say even on the ps4 version running on a ps5 it's kind of baked in that the game's going <laughs> like I, I i think it's both a, a a sense of trying to interact with the physics of it all but i also think that there's genuinely some animation um animations missing in terms of the kerning so it looks like it's frozen uh-huh. but actually the, it doesn't it doesn't have a smooth animation transition. Yeah. So it goes from one to the, so the action of starting right. the kick to the kick without the actual like the follow through yeah. the momentum, um, that that comes with that. So I think that it's kind of a two factor. Because there's so many different actions that Frank can do in the game because yeah. of the nature of weapons he can pick up and and whatever else that uh, that it was probably just yeah just a stretch too far to have ultra smooth animation for every single one of those actions. The other thing I wanted to mention, and, and, and it's interesting, obviously, as resolutions get higher and, and textures get sharper, this is less of a of a remarkable thing. I'm not sure what the original actually ran at resolution-wise. I'm guessing it was sub-720p. I doubt, I doubt they hit 720p on Xbox 360 with that many elements on screen, but I could be wrong. A lot of games at that period were sort of running at not 480, but like 5-something p so it was probably something like that so obviously the the 2016 version is at least 1080p even on the i think base xbox one it might be 900 but it's i think it's 1080 uh the amount of detail again in the the legible detail in the game world posters price pricing boards uh pictures of things uh and again that stuff instead of it just being a blurry almost impressionistic view of your surroundings it's more like being in the real place in that yeah you can actually read the signs on the walls see how much a cup of coffee is and all that kind of thing 
which I think helps sells mm. the the environment. And also, it doesn't feel like you see a, a consistent repetition of those items as well. You see those items, they belong in that area of the mall. You don't necessarily see it like two yeah. or three <laughs> stores down or yeah. uh, all the whole things, all the same assets again in the in sort of the next yeah. quarter of the mall kind of thing, which, you know, is, is incredibly impressive. And then you get the wackiness of like, yeah, but there's always a katana uh, hidden on that awning or an yes. Uzi in a tree. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that's... Uh, that's that's dead rising that's that's very much the loop of the gameplay though isn't it figuring yeah. out where and what to do with some of those um absolutely exploitable well, parts of it and i think that the um the zombies themselves play into that and i i would have assumed that something like this the zombies would have been random like they haven't got a huge number of zombie models but i would have guessed that there would be an element of randomness to like the positioning and things but once you start to play it, you learn that the ones that have got, I think they're wearing like a Hawaiian shirt. They're kind of chubby yes. looking guys. They're always holding uh, like a butcher knife or like a kitchen yes. style knife. It's a very handy device. That. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So you see one of those in the middle of a crowd, make a beeline for it and there's a weapon. There's always a group of um, cop zombies in one of the little water features as you're going yeah. out of the first area into the, the courtyard in the middle. And at least one of them has always got a handgun. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just learn through repetition. Okay, so, so if I take this little path, I will also be able to pick up these few items from these zombies along the way. So that's really interesting because these were all the elements that bounced me off this game really hard when I be- when I began playing with it. And it was very strange because... You know, Leon, you mentioned earlier on that you weren't necessarily aware of this stuff, nor was I, despite the kind of the month delay between North America and, and here, um, of the things that would make me bounce off. And of course, what we've or what we've seen is a I don't want to say the start of a certain kind of game genre or a mm. but maybe a, a redefinition of certain things that have since split out. Now, yeah. John, you mentioned already Dark Souls. That's that's uh, you know, a kind of level up die level up die kind of thing until you get stronger and stronger and that's something that i'd not experienced this degree certainly in a major game now you've already mentioned breath of fire that that's kind of where that came from in terms of a a gameplay mechanic and that makes sense because you know that that's where the, the the development team came from but it actually works incredibly well in this game now as fate would have it as we're recording this podcast in you know the end of 2021 mm. one of the games i've enjoyed the most this year that's made a real impression on me is deathloop yeah yeah and the idea that you ultimately have to consistently replay a game fit die or you know restart a loop to learn where items are to learn where new stories kick off or start what triggers these things yeah. Um, where certain things are going to be at certain times. Yeah. All of this, uh, the, the sort of the core mechanics that are underlying Deathloop are the core mechanics of Dead Rising in terms of where the weapons are, where the um, the, the certain kinds of beverages that you can go and mix together in, in, in the malls to sort of reinforce these things or give yourself abilities, where the cases, the case files all kick off, where certain people are going to be. Um, obviously the environment itself and being able to make it through with shortcuts and stuff, that is Dead Rising. Mm, and yeah. that is what makes Deathloop a really great experience. Now, 
I don't think I necessarily appreciated that from the off with Dead Rising because it became incredibly frustrating with a difficult learning curve. Yeah. And it was very unusual to have that experience of, oh, well, actually, you need to level up and die and then go back and do the whole thing all over again back in 2006. Yeah. But actually, yeah. 2021, yeah, that shines as a gameplay mechanic. Yeah. And also, uh, although... I mean, yeah, let's not do the death loop show just yet, but um but it, I, I think it's fair to say that you're slightly more mobile and uh powered up at the start of death near the start of death loop yeah, than I... perhaps Dead Rising gives you a good couple of hours at the start where it's like, Oh my goodness. And that's where yeah. actually those mechanics Almost every game seems to. Uh, you look at almost any game that's released these days on on uh, the blurb on on a digital store, and at some point you'll see roguelike or roguelite <laughs> written in there. And of course, yeah, there are elements of rogue in the you know the nineteen eighty the seminal RPG in in Dead Rising. Um, in that, yes, you yeah you can die uh permanently as it were and if you don't reload it actually becomes a balance and a choice doesn't it um on your first playthrough in particular if you get a chunk into the game and you die or you get you get game over effectively because you lose the thread of cases because you don't make it to a particular point at a particular time you then have the option to either reload your save or just go all the way back to the beginning fully powered up with all the extra strength and speed and inventory slots that you had at at the point that you died. I mean, that was hmm. that I don't think many you other games at that point had that or did that. Certainly not something that I remember from gaming at the time. And no. that was, that was an enticing um, opportunity for me as well. I remember really struggling through maybe the first day, first day and a half. Hmm. And I think I died I don't think I might have failed the case and then thought, oh, well, I'll just play around for a little bit and then died. And the game says to you, oh, you know, restart and take your level to the beginning. And I thought, well, I'm level 17 or something now. I am already considerably stronger and this is much less horrible than it was when I first started. So yeah, exactly. I'll take that option to restart from the beginning and yeah. do the first two hours of the game again, but with a like uh, stronger character and also significantly more knowledge of how the game works and where I need to be at certain times and whether it's worth balancing. Well, this case is going to need me to be back at the security room in 90 seconds. And there is somebody right here in this area who I'm running past. And if I grab them and try and take them back, it's going to be a real photo finish, whether or not I Mm -hmm. actually get there or not. So starting to learn some of those things um, was it made a huge difference for sort of make or break the game for me. But um, just on the that opening area, I think we talked about this with Tomb Raider a couple of weeks ago. I think that the the plaza that you're in right at the beginning, where you first come out of, I really should remember the name off the top of my head. Is it the Paradise Plaza or Leisure Plaza or something like that? The the intro one that you, you start off in. I think mm. that there's a really good balance in there of teaching you how some of the game's mechanics work. I mean, we've talked about, um, or I've mentioned the the cop zombies with the guns, that there is always a few of them in a very obvious location. And guns yeah. are not that easy to come by in the game. They're pretty... Or use. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that is the second hurdle. But they're relatively powerful and difficult to yeah. find. So giving you that there as like a, almost like a tutorial of here's your weapons. At the same time, you've got the... Um, 
the store upstairs, the cafe that's got a ton of food items in it and teaches you how to use the blender and has a massive cabinet um, right next to the blender with an infinite amount of orange juice in it and mixing two orange uh, juices together to make nectar. I didn't know about that. (laughs) Seriously? Infinite orange juice? Yeah, you just put it out of the cabinet. I had no idea. No, it's it's definitely a thing. So you can make as many mixed drinks as you want and just mixing two orange juices together gives you nectar, <sighs> which is one of the best healing items going, given yeah. that it doesn't also then have any weird or negative effects when you use mm. it. Uh, you've got the katana that you mentioned that is just there on that balcony. If yeah. you go around the back balcony and jump up onto <laughs> it, which is a little bit more hidden, there's some guns up there, including I think an Uzi or a submachine gun or something, which have pretty rare in the game um you've got the uh what are they called like the photo kiosk store right next to the entrance to back to the security room Mm -hmm. so you can always refill your um your film in your camera which basically helps you get um much more uh i'm not sure what pp stands for but the basically the experience in the game you've uh, got i've got it further down the show notes doc somewhere i should know off the top of my head but it'll it's be something prestige points that's yeah that's right okay so yeah so i mean that's massively useful for that you've got a bookstore i think basically right across from the entrance to the to the back area which has i th- i want to say i don't really remember the books that well but i want to say that that bookstore right there has one of the ones that's extremely useful one of the it's ones the one in that, it that um keeps your blade from busting uh because yes yeah. folks this game has uh weapon degradation. oh does it have weapon degradation <laughs> <laughs> boy yeah. howdy so you get that and you then get that katana which is also incredibly powerful but runs out very quickly so that first area within a few stores of the the area that you're first entering the mall into, you've got a, a pretty good range of the things that you are definitely going to need throughout your entire it's journey. true. The game doesn't over-tutorialise, I think it's fair to say, which I think is quite a good thing, having played a lot of more contemporary games in the last 15 years that do patronise the player. But also I was sort of conscious that uh, if I'd bought this in 2006, I guess it had at least a little paper manual in the box telling you a few things, um, which uh, uh, maybe there's a digital manual or something that I was ignoring, but uh, I kind of, I kind of learned the ropes through a combination of trial and error and, uh, and the odd bit of internet consultation. My main health potion, as it were, were just simply uh, (laughs) running around with bottles of red wine. Oh yeah. Um, They're they're pretty good as well. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think there's no drunk mechanic in this one, is there? No. They bring it no. in later. I think Dead Rising 2 definitely has a drunk yeah. mechanic. I was wondering that as I, you know, glugged down my my third bottle of Pinot Grigio or whatever in uh, in quick succession. Um it's all red, isn't it? It's that Pinot Noir. Very anyway, rough. Merlot. Uh but no, it's uh, yeah, it gives you like what, six six health squares back or something. I think so, that's yeah. the maximum that you can get from that right. or the juices all give you six i think maybe something like a cooked steak is is that high um but otherwise you're just kind of scrabbling about trying to find like a bag of crisps in a fountain and yeah. they do a p- pitiful amount of help that helps like the trips to the mall of my youth quiet paul from the forum says the zombies themselves look good i prefer the slow moving george romero style zombies than the sprinting, overly aggressive ones. The sheer amount you can get on screen at once with little to no frame rate dips, especially in the updated versions, is astonishing. 
genuinely the service tunnel uh even though maybe yeah if you look closely enough you can kind of see the joins and see how it's done i assume there are uh lower detail models going further back and ones that are hidden and all this kind of thing i i haven't done the my own personal digital foundry of it but when you're driving through the service tunnels which are a series of networks underneath the shopping mall and it just looks like it is flooded with thousands of zombies it, it's genuinely even though the actual things like the lighting and the particle effects just aren't there by modern standards so it, it looks a little plain playing it today but actually the the sheer number of zombies still impresses i do think that one of the tricks that they pull off is um that extreme like asset reuse there are not that sure. many different models of zombies and they also have uh, zombie models that are essentially um the same as some of the models for the survivors just with more like drab clothing or a little bit more dinged up or something but you you will see a lot of the same people over and over and over i mean that's <laughs> realistically how how many different zombie models you're going to make for something like this where they're boasting that they've got 800 on screen i mean it's not going to be 800 but that th- th- equally with the tunnels, the other thing, instead of just completely flooding them with zombies, is they also put tons of random little obstacles in them. So you've got zombies who are pushing um, shopping trolleys, which kind of get in the way and lodge in your uh, in your vehicle if you're driving through them. And there's also zombies that have got, they're wheeling like gas canisters or something. Yeah. So aside from everything else, running through these tunnels or driving through these tunnels with the tons of zombies... You've also then got the physics of potentially chain reactions of explosions going off, sending them all flying. So it's it's even more impressive, actually, the way that it plays out rather than just, you know, sort of looking at. Another thing I wanted to mention about the uh, you were talking about the sort of the risk reward and the, the time based elements. There is a curious thing. This is more into gameplay, but it's fine. The the curious sort of. Uh, I don't know if they, yeah, it's a kind of, I guess, a, a kind of gameplay corner they had to cut to prevent player infuriation is the fact that running around on your own is arguably more dangerous than running around hand in hand or carrying uh, a survivor because the zombies suddenly, instead of taking twice as much interest in you, if you're holding hands with someone or carrying someone, the zombies pretty much have a kind of, you, you can you kind of repel them at that point. Uh, which I assume was just to stop the players getting just incredibly annoyed by not only having to do escort quests, but also getting repeatedly overwhelmed. However, on 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 the other side of that, if you if you're in one of the escort missions where you aren't able to carry them or hold their hand, that possibly is some of the most infuri- infuriating uh, sections of the game. Would you concur? 100 percent. i mean there are ways to mitigate that to a degree um there's one of the the books that we talked about briefly these skill books that makes the survivors considerably more um like courageous whereas a lot of the time they'll um they'll just kind of cower in a corner or if you get too far away from them they'll just sort of fall to pieces um and the other thing that I think makes them considerably better is just handing everybody shotguns and then they, they actually do a half-decent job of tackling the zombies. But yeah, it's I I was never really 100% sure how much of this was deliberately designed to be frustrating, how much of it was actively mm. not particularly good AI 
compared mm. to all the zombies like trying to figure out yeah what this one ai's control points are going to be when there's <laughs> they have to be right next to you when you transition between areas otherwise they, that is also very true. yeah so there is a third way that you can help the situation is by drinking a cocktail that lures zombies towards Frank and not, which means right. that they actually peel away from the yeah. uh, quote unquote survivors, mm-hmm. um, potential survivors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just want to touch on the audio side of things. The music, as I say, main composer is Hideki Okagawa, with some work from Marika Suzuki as well. I do have uh, a couple of the the stings really stick in my mind and 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 I think they do quite a good job of bridging the that maybe that gap in the atmosphere between the real horror and the and the nonsense horror. Uh, nice nice use of saxophone as we always like to point out in uh, in <laughs> video games. Uh, did you think those the, the various uses of uh, of songs kind of over the top sort of themes for the for the psychopaths uh worked for me as i say i think the it was the 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 occasional sting that kind of worked for me um i have still got various bits of the muzak and stuff stuck in my head Um, of course more muzak as well important i really like the the just the little chilled out more music that you get um i think there's a couple of different songs that play in yeah. In different uh, different parts of the mall, but the different shops. The yeah. one that just sounds like a piece of elevator music or more music. I will never nice forget that. I don't think. Yeah, and I don't and intend I... to. I still whistle that all the time. Just think, oh, what's that? Oh, really? Oh, right, wow. oh, it's the Dead Rising music. Of course, it is. Again, <laughs> it's just going it's round cool. on a loop like, uh, yeah, like little Spanish flea. Seventy-two hours survival will do that to you, John. Yeah, mm. it will. It certainly will. And how about the the actual uh, the audio itself, the 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 folia, the diegetic work with the all the I mean, there's got to be there must be a ton of it in there. Uh, oh yeah, I feel like the uh, I, I feel like they the, the the basically the the noises of cutting, slicing, hitting, slash slashing, you know, whatever. It's all it's all still pretty solid. It it, it is, and it's, especially if you factor in the sheer amount of weapons both yeah you know literal smacking zombies mm. or the more comical ones of you know bowling ball nerf uh, gun golf club firing golf balls into crowds zombies etc laser sword. all of them yeah are um sort of unique to that to that weapon which yeah. you know amazing uh, do you want to quickly explain for those who haven't played the game or for those who it's been a while the there's there's three sort of main modes to gameplay 72 hour overtime and infinity so i mean the basic conceit of the game is that frank is stuck in this shopping mall for three days he tells this um i don't know who the guy is this helicopter pilot yeah come back and pick me up in three days and the three days kicks off and that that three day period is what's known as 72 hour mode i mean it is essentially just the the story mode the main campaign of the game so essentially the game, because it takes place over these 72 hours, it's, it is also broken up and events happen at different times on the clock. And I believe a, an in-game day is two hours in real life or in, in actual playtime. So an, an hour in-game, I think, is five minutes of, of playtime. And it is, it's kind of, is diegetic the right word to use? Like, Or is that more... I know that might be more applied to to things like sound, but the idea that the 
the clock ticks forwards, events happen at exact times. You're often told this thing will happen at this time, be here at this time. Um, certain survivors spawn, certain psychopaths spawn and despawn. Everything kind of happens, runs to this clock, which does not stop unless... Or it it does not stop while you're playing the game. So that is that is essentially... And that's the mode, that's the time, that's the, the, the entire conceit of the game. Overtime mode is basically if you finish 72-hour mode and complete all of the cases, you then get this extra little bit where it, you know, the story sort of falls apart. The idea of getting on the helicopter at uh, midday on the third day disappears and the game goes into overtime, which then lasts for... I think this one, the time limit still goes, but it's more of a a set thing of you just have to complete all of these tasks and then things move forward. So that then generally lasts for another day, maybe day and a half. Um, but that is that is tacked on to the main game. Um, and then the infinity mode is kind of a different way that the game plays where you have the clock system, you don't have any story, you don't have any any campaign or quests or anything like that. So the clock just goes on for as long as you could possibly survive for but you've also got um frank's health bar slowly ticks down it's, it essentially turns his health bar into a hunger meter at the same time so mm. it calls it infinity mode i'm sure that there are actual um estimates of exactly how long this mode could last for but um things tend to like food items and things in the mall are all different from how they are in the regular game, but they're oh. all still in set places. And as that goes on, different survivors and things spawn in again, like the main game in different times and at different places, but everybody is hostile to you. So everybody comes and attacks you. Um, and they tend to drop weapons and food when you kill them. So you, you do have this finite amount of food. I assume it doesn't just go on, you know, after 20 days in game, there are still survivors spawning who are dropping bits of food. You will eventually die. I think the the highest estimates I've seen for people actually getting through it are things like 22, 23 um, actual real-time hours. So that ends up being, I believe, a week would be 14 hours. So you can push it for somewhere in the region of 10 days to two weeks of in-game time but the time is essentially um meaningless in the game from any any of the points of view that it is in 72 hour mode there's no no story or anything to go by it is, it is just kind of a challenge mode uh of your health is going to tick down everything's going to attack you see how long you can survive for thank you very much Let's talk a little more because I think it, in some ways it is the prevailing story of the game, people bouncing off of Dead Rising. Ben's BB from the forum says, I had this game on the Xbox 360 as it was one of the hot titles early in that console's life. But my memories of it are hazy. I think I played it briefly, but bounced off of it. I revisited this game on the PS4 in order to play along with the show. But after about 10 hours, I gave up trying to play it any further. I love the setting and the world uh, that the developers created and I persevered for quite a while because I wanted to see how the story unfolded, finding navigating and discovering the more fun but the, in my opinion, crippling difficulty curve combined with completely useless survivor AI, awkward aim controls and unforgiving save system make the game 
far too frustrating. It's also been a while since I played the second instalment, but I remember that being much fairer on the player and a similar game, so I think that's probably the one to go for. It's a real shame the PS4 version of the game is just a straight port with a slightly higher resolution and doesn't attempt to fix any of the frustrating design choices. So I'd recommend this game only to the most patient gamers out there. Superuser says the first three hours were miserable and I would have quit if it wasn't for podcasts. But then something clicked and I was able to beat the first two sets of psychopaths. I got some amazing weapons and I learned the known part of the map like the back of my hand. Slowly I accessed more of the map, though technically I could have gone to most of it from the start. The game just guided me through it so I saw things at the right time. So that second post from Super User there kind of talking about how... I mean, obviously, it just didn't happen for Ben's BB. Ten hours, I would say, if you're still finding those elements really difficult and frustrating, the game is possibly just not for you. But certainly my experience playing it for this show was that by sort of, I guess it was the four to five hour mark, I started to feel more confident. I'd leveled up a few times, so I wasn't just dying at the first being grabbed uh, I wasn't getting constantly kind of knocked and pinned, you know, and, and you start, yeah, you start to learn a few things as super user says, where to get that katana, where to get the book, which means that the katana lasts twice as long. And suddenly you can run around, not with impunity, you still have to be careful, but you can at least get from place to place and feel like you're not just, do you know what? I think one, one point I wanted to make there right at the start of the game, you are put into a effectively it's a canned sequence where a load of survivors die right and there's nothing you can do about that but the game sort of as it goes on it sort of implies that maybe you could have done by the way it pans out but actually you can't like i've i've seen now some footage of people new game plus 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 plusing it whatever you want to call it they come back in they're fully powered up they've got the you know the the best everything and that bit is still canned people die in that section no matter what you're doing um so i i think maybe like i understand the point they were trying to make with that section but also i think it's a bit misleading and a bit disheartening perhaps yeah, it does kind of feel like a point of failure doesn't it when you do that and yeah everything just just falls apart and you essentially just run away and escape from the <laughs> The yeah. situation and the thing that kind of sucks about it is you do later um get back into that plaza um and you do kind of not really see the aftermath but you do you do end up back in the area where all those zombies came in and obviously it's it's all overrun and it's um more like the other parts of the more that you've already been through and by that point you realize actually you could just go around here without too much difficulty and just slowly pick everything off um but yeah, the idea that you start off and there's something like eight or ten survivors all in that area, and the mm. zombies just seem to come out of nowhere. Like you get the yeah. little, um, you get the cutscene with the woman who opens the doors to save her mm. little dog, and within two seconds of opening the doors, the entire place, all the way to the back, and you can be you can be like fifty yards down the the hallway at the back where there's a bunch of people and they're just all immediately fighting for their lives. So there is absolutely nothing you can do despite the game later telling you, you yeah. could, you can take out these zombies very easily and you can rescue survivors without yeah. too much difficulty. So it is, it is definitely a bit of a crippling blow right at the beginning. It, 
you can see what it's trying to do. It obviously it it tries to inform you that everyone else is incredibly vulnerable, and when it comes to rescuing them, that that's the case that you've got to try and defend them. But I remember the first few times of running through there, I was like, "Well, eventually, I'll be able to save these. I must be doing something yeah. wrong. Yeah. Like, have I gone the wrong direction? And Who you're do I save so first? slow and lumbering and cumbersome at yeah. the start. It just feels really. It's got- like. Yeah, sorry. It's just, I just, I think they they really goofed just with that how crap you are at first because I think so many people go, yeah, this game sucks. <laughs> yeah. There's one other point in here, which, I mean, I generally will fall along the lines of the game is really, really good, but you do need to get over that original point that you're going to bounce off. And the things that a lot of people bounced off and didn't like about it, I end up, with a lot of respect for later on but there is there is one spot here which i think is more of an unforgivable sin and you may not have actually discovered this when you played so there is a psychopath very early on in the game this this uh clown guy who i think you get directed to him as essentially being one of the first cases you get and he is absolutely nails hard to beat especially if you've um come at it on your uh, your first run and you are run away if it's on your first yeah 100 yeah, yeah. but beating that clown mm. unlocks a shortcut that goes from that courtyard that you're in or that plaza yeah. all the way back to the toilets that are almost right by the entrance back into the save room so doing yeah. getting that shortcut by doing this extremely difficult early boss fight makes so much of the game so much easier and gives you what i understand from reading possibly the best weapon in the, the game best. yes yeah yeah definitely the best weapon in the game yeah so i wonder if this game would be easier to market if it had come out new in 2021 essentially say this is a souls like game in that it will kill you and you have to get good to use that horrible phrase and it's a roguelike or roguelite in that you die and you get better and you come back. I think maybe marketing it as Capcom's new exciting action zombie game just yeah. perhaps you gave people different expectations to well the reality. The, the made it look like a, a daft fun game that you go in and have a ridiculous time in. Yeah. And you can do that. But it's going to take you probably a good fifteen, twenty hours um, yep. to get to that point, yeah. and uh, you know a lot of learning and a lot of frustration. And I, th- I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there, Leon. I think if Dead Rising never exists, it's released for the first time in twenty twenty one. The whole concept of that is a smash hit. Mm. Yeah, there's an element here where you look at the um, like the general kind of games. Uh, ecosystem in 2006 and you were looking at a majority of either like fairly linear kind of corridor based games that we talked about condemned similarly last week being very much a go from point to point to point play through this game see the story do the things and you will have an experience so that was kind of one half and then you know things like um, the call of duty games and gears of war and stuff very similar times followed that kind of point and then the opposite side of that was, you know, like an oblivion, which also came out around the same time that this did. Yep. Here's your massive open world. You have got no 
ties to anything here literally just go and mess about and if you want to just walk around and look at the world and take it in for 20 hours by all means do that and that can be your experience with oblivion and dead yeah. rising treads this really fine line yeah. of it it is not anything like either of those it kind of comes across as if it's going to be an open world game but if you just sort of stop and explore the open world you miss out on millions of other things so i think it's as you say it's just a a style of gameplay that was not very common or particularly well received in 2006 and i can't believe we haven't mentioned it yet but of course 72 hours in constantly ticking by the other game that this reminds me of in terms of the stress that it invokes is the legend of zelda majora's mask which which is another game that is very beloved and I massively polarizing but incredibly yeah people get really stressed about the the time limit thing I certainly did back in the day like I loved the game in so many ways but it was Mm. it just felt again anathema to relaxing with a video game in your free time when you've got these these time demands you have to kind of learn to I mean that you mentioned Deathloop earlier but the huge difference with Deathloop is of course that once you're in an instance of time it's locked for that so you can spend as much time as you want doing the things you want in that section of the day that's a really i think smart thing that deathloop did but i also think that deathloop could have potentially been much more divisive but potentially a bit more interesting even if they'd gone with the real time thing but it i don't know maybe they could patch it in as a i think it would be very difficult but it's such a I don't want to say controversial element, but it was certainly controversial to something like Zelda, but you're absolutely right. I, I haven't actually made that connection before, um, and it's one of the key reasons that I have found Majora's Mask to be stressful. But yeah. a lot of people play games now less so to relax, but to feel that tension and that pressure yeah, of for sure. accomplishment and doing something, mm-hmm. you know, and you, Dark Souls is probably a, a huge catalyst for the the commonality of that element now. And... The idea of you know that's that sensation of feeling and having a survivor and being like, come on, come on, come on, come on! I've got to get here. I've got to get here. I've got to get here. I've got to get that weapon. Yeah, yeah. I've got you know that, that what's my route? What's my route yeah. in it? You know, it, it's a real buzz, and I you know I appreciate it now because uh, or I appreciate it more now, and it took me a long time to appreciate it when this game was released because that's more normalized in yeah. how I play games now. But at the time, it was. Okay, this it is a run unusual. where I'm going to try and rescue people, or this is a run where I'm going to try and find things to learn things for the future. Um, mm. And it was very just, it was not all your runs were a run for the purpose of a completion. It was like a discovery, and that was purely just, just down to that, that time commitment that was in there. Yeah. And it's interesting, unlike obviously Majora's Mask, because it's a fantasy game set in, in a magical world, you play. You play the song on your ocarina and you get transported back to the start. And so it kind of makes sense in a magical way that you still have all the abilities. This game doesn't do that. It's just like you're dead, but you can start again with everything that you learned and have improved. And also you get some ridiculous unlocks from doing various things that then carry over into everything. So my, my way of playing this more recently when I picked this up on the Xbox One version was I think I did... Maybe I did a proper like playthrough of the storyline first, but then literally my my second run through the game was, or my second playthrough of the the game was just doing the um, uh, is it zombie genocider I think achievement 
where you yeah. basically spend three to four hours just driving in a just big loop around the tunnels. Mm-hmm. And once you've done that, then future playthroughs, uh, you have this, um, I think it's the real Mega Man Blaster is unlocked, which yeah, is essentially just basically yeah, a weapon that will just destroy everything. Cannon. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. I mean, it's you can find some fake Mega Man Blasters in yes. some of the stores. I think they shoot tennis balls or something out of them. Yeah, they knock, they knock things over very yeah. slowly and yeah yeah they're entertaining and likewise there's a like a plastic lightsaber thing that you can pick yes. up in the toy stores and hit zombies with and you can also unlock a proper lightsaber version of that yeah. by doing one of the very difficult achievements um, and again a lot of this stuff is kind of yeah like capcom didn't feel the need to kind of advertise these elements or or really explain what the game actually was and uh, and as i say i think context and expectation are so important obviously the game did well if it shipped 14 million copies and it reviewed well but it is interesting that there's always this conversation around dead rising which is yeah but uh, you know uh it was we've all seen movies before haven't we where we've gone well that wasn't what i expected that didn't seem to be how it was advertised but it's a bit different when you've laid down 40 quid on a game that looks like you're going to get in there and just smash things up and, and yeah. have the best laugh doing it and you realize actually this is a really brutal rpg yeah you need to play it for 15 hours 20 hours to unlock the weapons that are gonna yeah you have to you have to put the time in and and that's yeah that's cool if that's what you're expecting then as you say there's absolutely a market for that especially now but uh yeah. but yeah i just think it was a yeah i mean again i'd be interested what i haven't done is gone back and read the contemporary reviews from the time because i'm sure a lot of the writers pointed a lot of this stuff out but uh, but i think it's also very easy even when you're reading reviews to kind of highlight the bits in your mind that you're interested in and kind of gloss over some of the stuff that's actually quite pertinent to the experience yeah i mean i definitely read reviews from probably places like GameSpot before the game came out and they must have mentioned these things and i remember reading mm. reading some guides just to get an idea of how they're the game felt and they must have all mentioned all of this but it wasn't enough on paper to put me off right yeah which is hopefully just as well alex 79 from our forum says dead rising along with gears of war was one of the games i bought alongside my xbox 360 back in the day i'd heard about the game and wandering through a shopping mall picking up almost anything to use as a weapon against large hordes of zombies the likes of which we'd not really seen before in a game definitely sounded like my bag I was initially disappointed and didn't really understand the mechanics behind the game and the pseudo real-time clock with time-dependent missions and the like. I enjoyed killing zombies again, sure, but it took me a fair old while to actually figure out the game. After some time, I realised it's nigh on impossible to do everything in one run, so I employed a tactic I continued to use for the game's sequel. I did one run totally ignoring the story and just played every side mission I could cram in, levelling up Frank and unlocking abilities. Afterwards, I did a second run focusing on the story and any side missions I'd missed the first time around. This seemed, in the end, like the perfect way to play the game. By the time you were focusing on the story, Frank was tough enough to take on the bosses and actually get the job done. Playing in this way, I had an absolute blast with the game, and even more so the second one when that was released. Dead Rising has its faults, its difficulty spikes, and was a little janky even on release, but it was a game I really enjoyed and looked back on fondly. I think he's hit the nail on the head there. Like the, as weird as it sounds, ignoring the storyline for the first kind of run through 
and mm. just doing some of the dumb stuff that's going to earn you a load of PP points is going yeah. to make, yeah, like swallowing the the difficult parts of the story on your mm. essentially second run way better. And there is pretty like, counterintuitive. It is. It does not yeah. seem right, does it? It's like, oh, here's here's all this story that we're going to be pretty pretty like hard throwing down um, yeah. in front of you and putting all these big warnings and stuff in there that you're going to fail it and yes. when you fail it telling you ah oh, you probably should restart the game like yeah going <laughs> against all of that is definitely counterintuitive but then you can just have the the fun mucking about in the game and you you do all these things that i think it's it's really well designed the like the little mini things that you do that earn you a whole load of pp points um lots of them are tied to taking photos which i'm sure you've got a, an entire section about taking photos at some point um later on in the in the thing and you then get all of these things that just just sort of intuitive things to do it's like oh i found a, a little gym in this shopping mall mm-hmm. and there's a load of treadmills i wonder what happens if you run on the treadmill oh you run right. on it for a few seconds and it gives you like 2000 pp points oh there's six of them and you sort of go down the line get all your points there's um uh, like uh, punching bags and stuff. You punch yeah. the bag until it breaks, gives you a whole load of points. Um, doing yeah. things like heating up a, a frying pan and putting a steak in it will give you points <laughs> and stuff. So there's just there's tons and tons of little things that you can mm. do to... Sandboxy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. just mess about, see, yeah. see what looks like fun, and the game will reward you with extra XP, essentially, for doing it. Super user says, I would argue Dead Rising is the first true fourth dimension game. You have a constantly ticking watch. The game, place, the game takes place over 72 hours. Every quest in the game is time limited and linked to currently ongoing events. You'll see the shops change. For example, if you don't have time to get around to a survivor, the barricades of the shop they are holed up in will break down. At night, more powerful zombies come out. As time goes on, the survivors are affected. And for example, an apocalyptic cult enters the fray this could all describe a linear game which it is but it's repeatable nature brings it to the time dimension it also lets you ignore these parts and have things play out differently yeah just wanted to mention you mentioned the punching bags there uh and i mentioned no more heroes earlier another element that uh that frank has to his game is uh, is he meant to be an ex-wrestler uh <laughs> he's got can... the physique for it yeah he sort of he picks up and learns lucha libre kind of moves throughout the game now so these seem to be seem to require almost uh, as you maybe expect from capcom certain sort of slightly street fighter motion type inputs and things like this i hardly did any of these i think i did one or two of them by mistake uh but Mm. i i guess again if you're a real like dead rising aficionado and maybe a wrestling fan more than i am uh, this is actually a a fun way to uh to go about the place like uh, suplexing zombies and whatever else yeah they're also pulling their intestines out (laughs) yeah right right. there's a lot of one hit kill essentially and i get mixed up on here which ones of these are from the first game and what might have been introduced in the second but things like running up behind a zombie and you just sort of grab the back of their head and just slam it into the floor and smash their face down or um yeah doing this first one doing the suplex like doing the the thing where you just reach in and pull the guts out of them there's one one of the moves you get where you can climb up on top of them and like clamber over the top of a load of zombies. I think yep. you can do like a backflip kick that kicks their heads off, which is ridiculous. But yeah, they're all I th- the the leveling up system in this is kind of slightly random. Where I think 
when you each time you hit a new level, you'll get either a skill or you'll get a, a clip of health or an extra item in your inventory or maybe one of another couple of things I've forgotten about. Um, but they they tend to come at certain points. So you will get the skill, it, like your first one might be somewhere between like level 5 and level 8 or something. So depending on your path through the game, you might have seen some, but definitely not others. And even, even some of the ones that you can get quite early might have been a bit delayed. So it it's yeah it's very um case by case what you will actually end up with yeah conceptually it was good i think if it was done now you'd have a bit more refined skill tree um in in terms of how that stuff's delivered uh, not not everything that you can get through yeah you can kind of set yourself back i guess in terms of some of your skills but what mm. the one for example like running on top of zombies um is incredibly useful especially <laughs> yeah. early on as a sort of a get out Ah, oh, goodness me. Quiet Paul from the forum again says, The psychopaths are nothing short of amazing. There are not many games that can fit in so many boss battles and every boss has their own story, their own personality and their own way of fighting. From the iconic Adam the Clown, the headbanging music and time-limited aspect of Larry the Butcher's fight and the ridiculous but hilarious Stephen the Supermarket psycho battle. Then there's the forgettable Joe the Cop and frustrating convicts in the leisure park with Gone Guru by Lifeseeker jamming in the background. There we go. Compounding the pain of facing these guys. Although occasionally they would no-show, only to find them in a faraway corner accelerating their jeep into a small tree, leading to a rather awkward one-sided boss fight as the AI can't figure out how to fix itself. <laughs> uh, Quite a it useful trip. Use the trees. Yeah, I uh, my overall feeling about the boss fights is that I like the fact that they were relatively freeform, like the rest of the game, in the sense that you can you can cheese them, you can work out your own strategies for the most part, and there's usually a few little tricks to each boss arena that kind of you can you can learn and work out as a few little kind of hidden things that might help you in the situation. But also on the flip side of that, there there were also moments of real uh yeah stun locking frustration and things like that so uh, a mixed bag for me but but um yeah a bit more yeah as as quiet paul says uh, perhaps a bit more kind of uh striking than than a lot of games with kind of repetitive or or uh, cookie cutter kind of bosses they're also a little bit hit or miss depending on like certain locations so i think the mm. the one that he mentioned steven the supermarket guy He's one of the case files. I'm pretty sure you have to go and defeat him to get um, his kidnapped uh, Isabella. So yep. he's he's quite a difficult fight, but mm. at the same time you're in a supermarket, so you have pretty much a an unlimited amount of healing items just all dotted yes. about. So you can mm. y you can just eat to your heart's content and you know slowly whittle him away if you need to. Um, but then the other things, I think one of the things that makes the um, the clown fight fairly difficult is you kind of need to have a gun to to burst these little bubbles, balloons that he shoots at you. And that's one way of actually stun locking him and being able to get a few hits on him. But then you have to find a gun. And there are zombies in the general vicinity. There's a few of those cop zombies that we mentioned before just down the hallway who have guns. But if you've kind of wasted that or don't know what you're doing, that makes that significantly more difficult. Um and they they all have 
pretty strong rewards for for managing to finish them or virtually all of them do some of them aren't so great but Mm -hmm. you mentioned before you defeat the clown guy and every single time you come back into that plaza there will be one of his little mini chainsaws uh, in the spot where you killed him and they are ridiculously overpowered um there's some guys who hole up in the gun shop quite early in the game and they're quite a difficult fight at that point but then defeating them gives you access into the gun shop. So that's obviously a fairly solid reward itself. There's a guy who has a huge machete after you kill him that keeps respawning in the same place and is is very useful. So there's a real like risk-reward mixture. And one of the problems that you do get with this is when you don't know what you're doing, you'll stumble into a psychopath fight while you're also leading around a few survivors. And then that just ends up being a complete disaster when you've got a couple of other random people running in and getting butchered at the same time. The one I remember having fun in inverted commas and a question mark with was the uh the motorcycle one, yeah. The ended up kind of yeah, just really cheesing it, just standing yeah. in a particular place and waiting for her to come around again and do three shots and, you know, kind of yeah, it's it it, it in terms of cinematics, it was absolutely pathetic. <laughs> but in in terms of gameplay, I don't know. I I felt like I wasn't playing it properly, but I also had that kind of this is quite cool. I've worked out how to do this without dying, you know. Yeah, yeah, that was the frustrating one for me. Was the was the motorcycle? There's also like an actual boss fight at the end of the overtime mode, who is kind of the final boss of the entire game. You fight this guy, um, I can't remember very many details because he's kind of just this generic soldier guy and you're standing on top of a tank that's surrounded by the zombies and he kind of does does like a, you know, just sort of a karate attacking you and one of the issues is you keep falling off the side of this tank and then getting swarmed by the zombies and getting grabbed and that's, that. it's it's fairly simple and straightforward compared to most of the other psychos that have more of a like a big set piece but it's kind of an interesting way to finish the game and like if you've got to the end of overtime mode you have to have managed to get reasonably powerful so you you kind of get this slightly anticlimactic but all kind of also kind of cool fight with um this standard soldier to talk a little more about Frank's stock in trade, which is his photography. I actually really like this uh, conceptually, and and I think the the implementation of the the way it scores the photographs is very slickly done. Uh, mm-hmm. The fact that you actually bust out the camera, the controls are a little clunky. I think the the sort of the I'm not sure you can can you possibly can change the X Y uh, invert on the modern version. I'm not certain. Uh, but I was having a few issues with that. Uh, but yes, the the idea that you bust out the camera at this, and there are certain particular points where you get uh, extra PP. There's a little uh, icon flashes up on screen, and you can get maximum uh, XP effectively PP. Um, on the more dubious side, there's uh, there's one of the categories for your photograph as well as kind of you know action and gore and personal interest or whatever and things like this romance. There's also erotica, uh, which uh, which is really only uh, is it is it only women's cleavage? Is that the only thing? Or uh, and bombs and, 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 and butts. Yeah, 
Right. Yeah. So it's not great. I mean, yes. So since uh, since this game came out, upskirts were were rightly made <laughs> illegal uh, uh, as a as a uh, sexual assault, effectively. Um, but in this game, you get rewarded for it. So uh, yeah, that probably mm-hmm. wouldn't fly now. But overall, the uh, I like the fact that it it kind of obviously it's uh, not a Tecmo game, but uh, but the Fatal Frame series which is still going just had a release of uh attacking spectral enemies with a camera it has a a, a, yes a little relationship with that side of things but yeah it's um obviously every game (laughs) almost has a photo mode these days this is before that but it's a game with actual photography mechanics which i like i'd like to see more uh i I kind of wish like forza horizon does it a bit doesn't it you take photographs of cars and you get you get xp effectively I'd like more yes. games to actually have the photo motors kind of incorporated into the game rather than purely being a, a creative aspect. Yeah, and this is obviously one of the first things that it teaches you in the game as well, um, as you're flying in, in the helicopter, yeah. is how you're going to score certain criteria and that you'll get more prestige points per your scores. And um, It's the, easily the most the tutorialized element of the entire game. Yeah, yeah. it really, really is. And and yeah, it, it, so this is an element I really like, and I like it for two reasons. One is that it's a good way to earn your prestige points for um, framing certain kinds of shots, whether it's like a, a humor shot when you stick helmets or, or you know, equivalency of Lego heads on top of uh, zombies. Um, obviously, erotica is in there as one of the criteria. Now, um, I don't think it's right. But at the same time, people were going to do it, um, and it, it's a, it's kind of a, a strange thing. And you know, it I'd is object less if it seen. also worked on the male characters. The fact that it's so it's it's only yeah. the deemed attractive women characters is is tacky. I think. Yeah, I think that that, that that's a little tacky. And obviously, you know, you mentioned upskirting, but you know, we see that as an achievement in Lollipop Chainsaw and Near Automata Automata. Automata. Um, dubious in all so, cases, I would suggest. Dubious in all cases, indeed. They just removed um, the upskirting but, from uh, Resident Evil 4 VR, of course. Yes. Uh, you know, maybe you'd be better off not having it, but people were going to do it, so it scores. But one of the other things that I liked in the photography was that there are actually little hidden PP icons all around the mall. Yeah, stickers, um, yeah. And actually... and. I thought I was going crazy because it took me ages to find them, and that is because they are tiny. They are very weak. Um, yeah. uh, and you really have to go out of your way to kind of find a lot of these things. Yeah. And I can't remember how many there are in there, John no, or, or Leon. You might remember. I think it's 50, is it? They're wildly varied in that some of them you will just be taking a like a random crowd shot of zombies and it'll pop up with a little PP sticker right. thing, and yes. you yeah. barely even know where it is. It'll be some tiny little thing in the background, yeah. but then there's some that you have to be right focused on perfectly, like full frame, full close-ups mm. to actually get them to, yeah. to tag in. I think there's one, isn't there, on the whiteboard right as you leave in the, uh, the, the safe room area that you go to all the time. I think there's one in that area. Um, and th- this is the kind of thing that I absolutely adore in gaming anyway, is trying to find these things and searching an actual interesting environment for certain elements. So uh, I was a huge fan of that. And obviously photography is one of the, the core elements of Dead Rising that they kind of took away in the sequels. Mm. Um, and, and it definitely missed that aspect. Uh, yeah, and obviously it, it it completely fits with the fact that Frank is a photojournalist. He has his camera. He can use his camera. Um, 
So yeah, really a, a big fan of the fact that they, they, they put the photography as a way to actually score your prestige points. Yeah, and it, it adds in another little um, element to tons of the survivors and most of, if not all of the psychopaths will also have some sort of little um, gesture or something that they make that if you manage to whip out the camera and, and snap it at the right time, you'll get a load of points. And I think the, frame perfect, I think, some yeah, of it, or near frame perfect. Like it's really, like really quick, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, and it tutorializes this pretty well. Like you surely remember the very beginning of the game when you first leave the safe room. There's You're on the rooftop with the elevator, and there's a couple of old people there who are like on opposite sides, but you can yeah. barely miss them. And they both say to you, I'm not going anywhere until the other person is here. So it tutorializes the survivors to you That's immediately. True. And That's then true. when they get near each other, they run in and have a big hug and yeah. the thing flashes up, PPPP. You take a photo of those two people hugging at the beginning and it yeah. immediately gives you something like 7,000 PP points. Like it's, it's enough to give you a level at that point in the game. Yeah, and then sure. you take them back into the thing because it's right there and you get more PP and it immediately gives you another level. So it does a really good job of tutorializing like you're going to, you do these things, you photograph people when they're doing you know an interesting gesture and you get them back to the safe room you get a lot of points out of it and that's kind of the hook of the game there but yeah i think the the photography stuff for me has it works really well both in the way that it actually plays out like the the risk reward of trying to get interesting cool photos of things and at the same time it's it serves quite nicely as if i went to play this now I would love to boot up the 360 version and look at what photos are stored in my album, like what 20 or 30 photos I took that I tagged as, yeah. don't delete these, like keep these in the thing. And it, you mentioned before there's a bit of weird dissonance with you can die and then restart the game in um, you know, perfectly good health uh, with all your level ups and everything. You can also tag photos in the um, in the album to keep them and then they carry forwards into the next playthrough and there's at least one way where this there's a really bizarre part of this where you meet a psychopath very early on called kent who's a another photographer who kind of gets the hump with you and he quests you with go and take a photo of this this and this and he basically wants you to get photos with a certain number of um, pp points attached to them and i think the last one that he asks you for is an erotica photo with a particularly high value and I'm not certain about this, but I think that the only way that you can possibly get a high enough erotica photo is if a certain point later on in the game from when he's asking it to you, you found another survivor and brought her back to the safe house and she rings and says, can you come and take like some glamour photos of me? So if you take this photo on a different playthrough that takes place further forwards in time from where this guy wants <laughs> right, it, yeah. then save that photo and then take it back to him. It's like it's like a weird... Um, That's the fourth dimension. Yeah, like a weird paradox-breaking thing of you're showing him this photo from the future. Um, like so, yeah, yeah. that's, that's kind of cool. But I think the whole photography thing is great, and it was a shame when they, they stripped it out of Dead Rising 2, and I'm glad that yeah, there was the pressure on them to bring back mm. Frank and bring back the, the cameras for basically a remake of dead rising too one other uncomfortable element i felt was uh, there's a sudden and rather crass and shocking depiction of suicide now i have mixed feelings about content and trigger warnings because i think you can rob storytelling of some of its power and, and potential to affect 
but also uh this was just really like basically a guy tells you to go and get a gun to help him out and you obviously you think he's going to help himself out of uh of this as all the other survivors have kind of you know find a way to to extricate themselves to safety but he in front of his partner just you give him a gun and he just blows his own brains out and it's again it's one of those moments where it's like i wasn't sure i was playing that kind of game now actually you know that i can imagine a, a really superb powerful dark scene in another game where that's uh beautifully handled but i'm not sure this this is that <laughs> did you find that scene i just it was just jarring like I, i'm not i'm not suggesting it should be you know banned or cap capcom should be cancelled or anything yeah. it was just like i a, think this is mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this this ties into sort of the the, the balance of the game um, in terms of like tonally, it it can change on a dime. I mean, even to the overarching story is actually quite deep and and interesting. That actually that you know that the purpose for the uh, release of the virus um, actually has origins that are detailed on real statistical figures in the United States for. Um, meat consumption and the right, reason yeah. why they went to Willamette, and you can completely ignore that or be completely oblivious to it. But it's actually pretty in depth and interesting, and yet tonally not at all with so much else that actually happens within the game. True, yeah, yeah. I'd kind of hadn't even thought to talk about the actual <laughs> the the mystery behind the story of the game, but uh, but yeah, it's a it's it's a it's a funny one. Yeah, and the the thing that I think struck me more than anything else about the suicide scene is that it's it the way that the game plays it out is you do bring all these survivors back to the safe house, and at various points later on, there's probably half a dozen or so of them who will uh, will contact Frank and say, "Yo, I can you do this thing for me?" There's a guy who wants mm-hmm. you to bring him some food. There's someone who's just kind of disgruntled. There's the woman who wants you to take some photos. There's someone who wants you to bring them some booze. And often there's kind of a downside where if you don't do these things, like if you, if you get this call saying, yo, bring me some food, and you don't, you then find out the next time you go there that that survivor has just gone, like he's left the safe room. And in some cases they take other people with them as well, hmm. which is essentially, you know, that kind of affects your bottom line at the end of the game. Like you end up not getting these survivors out of the mall and oh, you see, also right. end up getting less PP because you get a, the end of the game, it'll be like, oh, you rescued, you know, 20 survivors. Here's 2 million PP points, you know, 100 grand for each one. Um, so you you end up by not fulfilling some of these requests you essentially fail characters' little arcs. And the idea that they're all kind of these fairly basic things that you do, and then this is one guy that if you do the thing and you follow it through, you then get the negative reward out of it as, well, the opposite of the reward at the end of it, aside from it being this horrifying scene, really drives home that, yeah, this maybe this wasn't quite um, in line with the rest of the game. Yeah. On the achievements, so this was one of the first games that I can remember that actually took a look at the Xbox 360's new... Actually, it came... They Did uh, Did they come in on Xbox original first? No, they didn't. No. Did they? Xbox 360 first. And uh, a lot of games at this point, as we know, were simply doing 100 points, you've completed a level. Sometimes they were doing 1,000 points, you've completed the game. Sometimes, you know, they were doing very... Uh, 
very simple, unimaginative things. But a few developers, both some small independent developers and some larger studios, were thinking, we could have a bit of fun with these. Uh, now, maybe there's an argument that Capcom <laughs> went a bit too far with some of these. Quiet Paul says, one thing I really detest is the mind-boggling seven-day survivor achievement. I enjoy collecting achievements where I can, and I have all the achievements in this game, except for this one, because despite trying once or twice in the past, I don't have 14 hours in the day to put towards this bloody thing, and so Dead Rising will always sit as incomplete in my achievements list. I'm sorry, but mm. I do, and I've done this twice, and <laughs> I had a blast both times that I did this. So I was talking to my friend Paul about this, um, and this is one of the achievements that's actually stopped him from getting it because yeah. he got distracted by something and he didn't realise and he basically starved yeah. um, and died that way hours into this. So, yeah, yeah it, it, it's... It's it's a time management issue more than anything yes. else. Um, I mean, it is it is a day, and if you know what you're doing... Um, you can make a day out of it. And the idea here is that, as, as previously mentioned, uh, the survival or infinite mode, your health very slowly ticks down. So the first the first challenge to this is get to level 50 in the main, main game with your PP points so that you've got the maximum amount of hit points and uh, yeah. item slots and everything. And then you basically hoard a ton of food items and you sit in places where the zombies can't get you and yeah. just wait and your health slowly ticks down and you eat a food item every time you get down to nearly dying. It's and... a nice realistic depiction of what the zombie apocalypse would be like for many yeah, of us. kind of. Just, yeah, just, just sat in on corner, top of an awning or in the gym or in the antique store where you know that the zombies can't get to you. And yeah. you know, in my, my case... Um, I think the first time I did this was in 2007 and I sat in front of the TV all day, probably on a weekend day when I didn't have anything going on every 20 minutes or so adjusting what I was doing, just mucking about a little bit. And I just sat there and I think I read an entire book and I played a bunch of stuff on my DS or whatever I had at the time. And mm -hmm. I quite enjoyed the, the kind of the weird little challenge behind it. Yeah. Yes, mm. achievements at their best and or worst, depending on your... <laughs> yeah. And... Well, I mean, I've always been of the, the attitude that achievements should be something... There's nothing wrong with an achievement being something that you genuinely have to achieve. There's absolutely no right that you should be able to get everything out of a game if you're not willing to commit to it. Yeah. Um, within reason, you yeah. know, there's some yeah. games that take that to the extreme, yes. being unborn but... in the world, etc. Yeah. But yeah. Um, this is probably to this day one of the most varied lists that you will have in terms of tasks and activities that keep something really interesting right and also was probably my first experience of a game experience being elongated as a result of an interesting achievement list Absolutely. itself yeah yeah the same and this is one of the first games that i played where i was aware of the achievements and mm. it made yep. they made me want to see different things in the game and kind of vary up my play style and it was definitely one of those early games where i played it probably a lot more than i would have done otherwise because i thought that the achievements were interesting and even mm. even back on the 360 version of this 15 and then a little bit less years ago i must have played through this probably six or seven times 
yeah mostly in order oh, yeah. to just get all the yeah. achievements out of it and you know for in that respect i think that's when achievements kind of work when they make you enjoy a game more and potentially get more time out of a game than you would otherwise yeah, yeah. and it's to their credit i think that the the testament to the the original achievements they put in that they brought back the exact same list for the 2016 versions they didn't make any sort of concessions yeah. to to modern more modern gamers sensibilities they just left mm. them all in a seven day survivor and all normally that feels like a bad thing right whereas this it felt like they'd got it so right the first time that the, the still stand the one i remember looking at at the time on my dashboard and going what was the genocide one which yeah. is the the entire population of the town 53,000 odd zombies yeah. and uh, and I think some of my friends people on my friends list had it and I was like what it's one really? of those things that you look at and when you're just mucking about in the game and just running around you think man 53,000 zombies how yeah. on earth is that going to work and then, then you find you, the car yeah you find a car realize that there's <laughs> yeah. these tunnels and it's like, yeah, four hours of driving loops around the tunnels. Only you're four get. hours. Yeah, only four hours. Four hours. It well started spent. a whole culture, right? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Much, like right. games started to try and outdo each other with that yeah. same achievement. So I think was it Left for Dead went for one more, yeah, and this, then uh, there was a bunch of games that that kept. Club I think or it's something still, like that that did it. I think it's still ongoing. Yeah. The, the, yeah, yeah, it's you still see it referenced now, you and do. you know where it comes from. It was Dead Rising that started it, 100%. and obviously that number is the entire population of willamette That's on right. the sign yeah. in the intro uh, i'd completely forgotten as well that the game had some paid for cosmetic dlc yep uh which yeah awesome i that own some of these i think oh, that nice. they made these free at some point uh, okay because um, i remember free originally they might well they there may have been think. free ones there may have also been paid for ones but if you go and look at, or I mean, you can't, but if I go no. and look at my <laughs> like my purchases history on the 360, if if I've got the time to scroll down through thousands of oh, items, no. right at the very bottom of it, there's all these things like the sharp dressed suit and the snake skin something or other. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, these are all those things from Dead Rising. And they maybe they cost something when you very first got the game, like when it was new, but I would not have paid for like 20 different costumes that's so just here's like a pair of little circular john lennon sunglasses it's like no i'm not paying right even 20 microsoft points or whatever they might have cost for something like that so i do think that they they either were always free or they might have cost something and they made them free another thing that i think is quite interesting and and sort of a, an illustration of changing times is so frank can wear anything that i mean you know there's lots of different kinds of clothes available including dresses Frank can wear a dress. And I think at the time, I'm sure it was only put in for hilarious comedy value. Frank's wearing a dress. But now, of course, we're in an era where games rightly let you wear whichever traditional gender of clothes you fancy. Um, so it's kind of it's almost it's kind of uh, become it's, circle, it's become it, really? the same game has gone from being slightly possibly transphobic to woke without <laughs> without changing its code. Um, yeah. And the, the, I think the idea that and, it's. It's never mentioned. It's never really picked up on. Yeah, um, it's not. It's yeah, not. No one reacts. It's not played for massive laughs. Yeah. But I think it was intended as being amusing. But uh, but you could oh, also sure run around with a Mega Man head on. So mm -hmm. you know. or like in uh, very very small kids' clothing sort of thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and the fact that all of these continue in all the cutscenes and no AI ever reacts yeah, to anything that you're wearing actually completely sells that. And I guess Saints Row Two and Beyond sort of 
probably took an influence from that that sort of that yeah. wackiness. Uh, Nup Raptor from a forum says, I remember getting this relatively close to release. At that point, I was used to the Resident Evil games where you might be used to facing four or five zombies at a time. The ability of this game to put hundreds of zombies on screen at once was just stunning. It was a powerful demonstration of the difference between console generations. The relatively complex time limits, leveling system and strict timetable for events and rescues didn't sit well for me with the rest of the game, which was about having goofy fun, putting on silly costumes and hitting zombies with wacky improvised weaponry. As a result, I don't think I ever made it as far as the better endings. Yeah, so endings A to F, uh, which require different, uh, some very specific things to be met. So I, uh, my ending, my one and only ending was the, I did solve all the cases, but I'd forgotten to have a conversation with Isabella at 10 a.m., <laughs> which <laughs> ev everything else I'd done. Uh, obviously, I hadn't rescued every survivor or anything like that. But uh, but yeah, that one particular thing, I'm not even sure. Was, did I know I had to talk to Isabella it, at 10 a.m.? You are told in a line of dialogue at some point, but okay, unlike thanks. everything yeah. else in the game, uh, you are not ever prompted to actually do it. Like every other case okay. file, you need to be here, you need to do this, all pops up on your little planner thing and on your watch. This thing about Isabella, I think it is mentioned to you once and then it's not on your HUD or anything. So I had exactly the same thing okay. when I first played through the game. I went to the end of it. I was up on the rooftop wondering what was going to happen, and I did not get the best ending, and it was I thought that was really frustrating at the time. So I think it is very poorly signposted, that last little bit that you need to do. Okay. And so, how about how about the other endings? Uh, what, yeah, what what do you want to do? And, and I mean, don't go through them all in fine detail, but... What's it worth doing, shall we say? Well, there's really, as far as I remember, there's really only the two distinct ones. There's the ending where you do do all the case files and you get to the helipad at the end and the game then continues into overtime mode. And there's kind of everything else that if you don't do the case files, you can still end up on the helipad and you can still rescue survivors and the game still ends, but you don't wrap up the the story yeah. and then the the other little ones in between that i think i just think like i think ending d is just if you die somewhere in the middle of the game you can get ending d or like if you fail one specific d is the one where you it. get uh taken off by the special forces in a helicopter actually ah okay okay so that is a little <laughs> bit different then yeah maybe it must be yeah. f that's if you literally die during the game and you f is the one restart. where you failed to collect the bombs during that hairy bomb oh, diffusion well. chase okay. yes in which, in ending F for fail, presumably, the bombs destroy the mall, just as Carlito planned. The explosion sends the infectious parasites into the into the stratosphere, causing a nationwide zombie pandemic. <laughs> so they're all failures, apart from there's like two that you do yeah. quite well, and then the others are various points of failure. Yeah, yeah. my 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 helicopter pilot got uh, eaten. I think. Yeah, that was my first day. I yeah. think that's the difference <laughs> between like A and B is whether you speak to Isabella and whether it can... Well, I, I don't know. I shouldn't really say because I'm not certain. But 
I think quite negligible, isn't it? It, it it's there's minutia to the to the endings. It's, uh, yeah, in terms of what's required to get the endings, but it's obviously it's it's an open approach game, isn't it? You you can approach it however you want. I mean, you can literally go and wait there for you can yeah. you can never the, leave the full the duration of the time the and then place. get on the helicopter. You can just sit there for six real time hours and the helicopter sure. comes back and yeah. it just finishes and then just go. Yeah, sensible. We also have some three word reviews. From Twitter, follow us on all social media. I say all the ones we've got at Kane and Rinse. Uh, Mikey Bam Bam says CRT Tiny Text. Richard Burt, I've covered Wars. Alex79 says best played twice. A female Pheromone says remake it, Capcom. And Super User says nice, perfect, fantastic. That's the uh, is that like the the photography? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Speech. Sound bites. That's the word I'm looking for. Anyway, let us summarize. Dead Rising, the first. As I said, uh, it may have taken me 15 years to get around to actually not bouncing off this game or forcing myself not to bounce off it by committing to host a podcast on it, <laughs> which is, as I've said many times before, kind of how Kane and Rince game <laughs> came to be. Um I think it's a really interesting game. It's genuinely, I think a lot of the the philosophies about its design are things that have become more popular in the 15 years since Dead Rising was released than at the time, even though the game did well, reviewed well, sold well, and all that. As we've heard anecdotally, a lot of people, including myself, bounced off the game due to its rather unapproachable nature. And in particular, the fact that it puts you up at a very uh, disadvantageous position from the beginning and then quite quickly throws a few difficulty spikes at you, doesn't necessarily explain everything very well. There's a lot of hurdles to overcome. But what I found is playing through at least to the end of the 72 hours for the podcast is that, yeah, the more you play it, the more fun it becomes, the more interesting it becomes. It has some quirks and foibles, the pathfinding, um, Although, you know, as escort missions go, they they weren't the worst I've ever played in video games. The boss fight, similarly interesting, if a bit janky. I actually do uh, agree with Female Pheromone here. This is not a game that needs another remaster. As I say, we've effectively just got a uh, an upscaled, pretty straightforward port on last-gen consoles. I don't think we need another one in 4K or whatever. But I do think there's a really interesting potential for a proper Dead Rising, let's start all over again, reboot on current Mm. gen systems using leveraging the power of solid state drives and current rendering tech and the RE engine to effectively, yeah, revisit. Um, Maybe, you know, don't go too soft on the quality of life stuff, but perhaps just smooth off the edges in the same way that uh, that I think they did to an extent for Dead Rising 2 and just make it a little make the onboarding I'm going to use lots of jargon uh, a little bit a little bit smoother <laughs> um but yeah I would be genuinely really stoked and interested if Capcom announced Dead Rising current gen Xbox Series X and PS5 and PC uh, I think they could they could make a really really exciting game and actually Obviously, as Resident Evil has kind of moved away from zombies as such in a lot of ways, this could be their zombie franchise again. 
Um, I also like I didn't play Dead Rising three or four, but I know that. Well, I feel like each one has been a little less well regarded than the previous, or just generally, you know, yeah. series franchise fatigue. I think I don't think Dead Rising five even sounds like a kind of starter to me. I, as far as I know, it doesn't exist. Start again. Yeah, I'm up for it. Dead Rising. Carl. I think you you kind of you know from from female pheromone and yourself uh, have kind of nailed exactly where I sit on it, and I, I feel that there's a sense that Capcom didn't really realise the gold dust that actually hit with Dead Rising all that time ago, and I don't think they're the only ones. I think uh, consumers as a whole maybe didn't understand what it was that they were playing the very the many branches of things that have become very much more common and, and incredibly popular today. And I think you can really sell that with a remake with controls that don't have aiming on the left movement stick, for example, or um, mm. improved pathfinding. Uh, because the other things that they did, the environment itself is one of my all-time favourites in, in gaming. There's just something about a mall environment that's in just immediately relatable um you know even whether it's real life or whether it's the you know the movies that clearly inspired it and they've kind of chased that since and you know with every subsequent dead rising release they've kind of removed features to try and streamline it but they've actually removed the features that maybe made the first one the most interesting of the lot um john's mentioned that they tried to you know ram stuff back into dead rising 2 to make that relevant and um that that's a little bit frustrating but you've kind of you've got the perfect scenario you've got the perfect environment to do it in you've you've got that kind of wacky humor you've got that roguelite soulsborn element in there mixed with a a, a little bit of of relooping and new game plus and you like everything's there to make something really incredible and this sort of did Back in 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 twenty uh, in two thousand and six, and I actually appreciate that game much more now. Looking back on it historically, and uh, kind of forgive its foibles with its controls, but ultimately they are the things that limit it. And I think with a remake, particularly on the 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 sensational RE engine, um, that is is just it's special. Um, I, I think a, a full remake of, of the original Dead Rising would genuinely be something really special. Mm. Tantalizing. Let's finish with John. Yeah, how can I disagree with that? Um, the the idea of, of doing a new, improved sort of Dead Rising 1, but as long as it keeps all of the, the kind of the fun and the color and the chirpy music and don't, please don't make it too dark or too gritty or too realistic or anything. Cause that's not, I, I feel like that was the point where I started to lose interest with dead rising. Uh, I really enjoyed the first game, like really, really enjoyed it once I, I got into it properly. Um, and was very pumped up for the second game when that came out, enjoyed that and all of its spin-offs a lot. And I've, I've always wanted to get into dead rising three and I thought it looked kind of good, but at the same time, that slightly more realistic approach to it turned me off somewhat. So, I mean, I, I will probably play that, or I will definitely play that at some point in the future. But, yeah, just a, a, another 
another game that was very similar to the first one i think is is what i'm really looking for and my my experience with dead rising i think is is quite heavily tinted by like personal experiences at the time and yeah i've got anecdotes that there's no point in talking about them because they're things that are very personal and very special to me that tie into the times that i was playing this game and the things that were concurrent in my life and even you know the ridiculous thing that i mentioned earlier of having a good time doing that 14 hour survival thing i enjoyed that because of you know i really enjoyed the book that i read while i was reading uh, while i was doing it so the two in my head are kind of all combined and i've got that with dead rising it's a lot i i genuinely really really like a lot of the things that it does but there's also an element of it that is just a warm sort of nostalgic fuzziness that makes me want to keep coming back to it and i think we often say with some of the older games like this on the podcast that we enjoyed playing these but it's difficult to recommend to people to Mm -hmm. go and play it now but i don't think that that's so much the case with dead rising it's got pretty nice looking concurrent versions that are very easy to get hold of on on your most modern consoles and pc and yes there are things that are difficult about it and that are challenging to get past some of the the more mm, out, outdated is not the right word to use but the the more kind of things that would not be done so much in modern gaming the lack of hand holding that is now very specific to a more niche indie sort of audience and is not mm. something that you get out of a the studio like capcom with a big budget yeah. game like this now so those things are there and they are a thing that you need to work around but it that's also your your learning experience is figuring out how to how to beat the systems that initially are frustrating and how to turn them into your favor and i think that that's something that doesn't lose its edge over time so despite the, this game being 15 years old i think it is still remarkably playable in this day and age so i would definitely recommend it if you're at all interested Thank you. Good stuff. That was an interesting game to cover. So it remains for me, Leon, to thank John and Carl, Editor Jay, as well as our correspondents, and of course to you for listening. Next time, in issue 494, they say you can never go home again. Final Fantasy VII Remake. Thank you.